Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we deep dive into a different aspect of cinema, directors, actors, genres, or franchises. It doesn't matter, because it's always fun at the Film Club. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And this month, we're talking about a director. We're talking about Tim Burton. And this week, we're talking about... Ed Wood. That's right, Ed Wood, 1994, stars Martin Landau, Johnny Depp, Bill Murray, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette. Uh, it's it's the a, list just keeps going. George Animal Steel in Martin a scene, Landau in a scene stealing performance. Um, but yeah, no, this is a pretty pretty deep uh, well of uh, actors. But yeah, um, this is Ed Wood. This is the consensus end of Burton's immaculate run for his career. Yeah, because up to this point, um, he did Pee Wee, we which we did last week. We did. Uh, Beetlejuice, which we did last month, or two months ago? Two months ago, yeah. And Batman, which we did last year. Yes. Edward Scissorhands, which we did like the first year of our podcast. Pretty much. And uh, Batman Returns, which we haven't gotten to yet. We're waiting for another Batman month. Yes, but that's the thing. He does those five movies. All yeah. of them are huge box office hits, critical hits. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. We did that for Halloween. We did. We did. He didn't direct that, though. He produced it. He did produce it, and that's... That's how he gets in good with Disney, and that's why they produced this movie at Touchstone. Yeah, well, it was also a thing where he was shopping this around, and because he wanted to do it in black and white, no one really wanted to do that. So Disney was kind of like, all right, this isn't too wild for Tim Burton, so we'll do black and white. We'll do it through our sister company, uh, Touchstone, because it worked really well for A Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, That's also the thing, is Disney wanted to be in the Tim Burton game, because that list of movies... All of them were huge box office hits. Like, Batman alone basically greenlit his career forever. Like, he did the whole one for him, one for the studio gig, but even the ones for him were hugely expensive, wildly successful films. Edward Scissorhands made a shit ton of money. Yeah. You know, Beetlejuice, shit ton of money. So, he goes into Ed Wood. This is the first one that actually flops for him. This is his first flop in his whole career. But... It flops, but it's credibly acclaimed. Yes, it is nominated for two Oscars and, and wins two. It, yes, it does. Yeah, it wins both its Oscars. It wins uh, Landau for Best Supporting and for Best Makeup. And it's, I think to this point, Burton's only Oscar-winning movie. No, he's had, because Beetlejuice, I think, won for Makeup? I, I think that's the thing. He has tried to get a Oscar for either his direction or a best picture mm. for something he's produced, but he has never gotten a claim as a director. Yeah. He gets a claim as a stylist. His movies have a very particular look, and people like how he's... Uh, the Tim Burton aesthetic. The Tim Burton aesthetic, that's right. But he's this is the only time he's ever directed a actor into an Oscar-winning performance. Yeah. And it's weird... Because this movie, even though it's it's a stylized film, it's not a Tim Burton stylized mm-hmm. film. You're not getting, you know, the weird pinstripes and German expressionist angles. It's a movie that you could mistake for not being a Tim Burton film. Yeah. You know, if Johnny Depp wasn't here, it could have been anybody. But yeah, that's Tim Burton up to this point. The other director we kind of have to talk about that I'm pretty sure people don't actually know all that well is Ed Wood. Yeah, I mean, I, people either know that he's been deemed the worst director ever, mm-hmm. or they've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space. Uh, in like a parody riff tracks thing. Yeah, but other than that, 
he's not really talked about too much. Yeah, which I think is a little bit of a shame because I you've seen Ed Wood movies, right? I've seen Plan Nine from Outer Space, but it's been such a long time. I think you know I need to give it a rewatch just to do it justice, see it as an adult. Because mm-hmm. other than that, I've never seen Glenn or Glenda. Um, a Bride of the Monsters, the Bride other of famous the Monsters, one. You know all the other movies that is talked about in this movie. Yeah, because I've seen all of the movies talked about in this film. Uh, expressly because we were gonna do this movie. Yeah. And um, worst director of all time is a pretty apt <laughs> description of the man, but here's the thing about his movies that are different from those 50s B-movies that y- y- we've all seen on, like, bad sci-fi at 3 a.m. Yeah. Is his movies are, like, really sincere. Like, he sincerely is trying to make a good movie. He just is, like, either budgetarily incapable or doesn't have the talent or the eye of a director to compose something good. I mean, they make a point of it in this movie where it's like, you sure you don't want a second shot? No, I don't need it. And it's just like, as a photographer, it's like, no, you make sure you have a backup shot. And you as, you a, ju- you just, as a filmmaker, you know. You always do at least a second take for just, just coverage, just mm-hmm. in case. Because sometimes when you're doing your first take... The performance is great, but you didn't notice the boom pole in the in the background. Yes. Or you didn't notice the C stand that's been sitting off in the corner all day that no one decided to move right before the shot. You yep. always do a second one. Just to be safe. And I did it is used in the movie like fucking hilariously. Every time they're like, You sure you don't want another one, um, Eddie? He's like, Why? That one was perfect. It was great. Yeah, Eddie, he he ran into the door and it shook the set. He probably is like that every day. Works great for the film. Cut it and print it. And, you know, storms off the set. I mean, apart from that, you know, him with his, we only do one shot. I think one of the best lines in the movie is, you know, when he's talking to Bella. And he's like, Bella, we got to do this. I have 30 scenes I have to film tonight. The movie's due in, like, two days. It is, a, yeah, that is, like, a thing about this, like, era of Hollywood and Ed Wood as a director. Now, the, this... <sighs> Again, this is going to get into a whole weird history lesson that is probably not super relevant to the movie we're talking about today, but it is kind of interesting. So the whole Ed Wood thing, and it comes up in the movie, is he made movies super cheap, like Z-grade movies. And what it was was a production company would sell a town in Oklahoma or Nebraska and say, here's this poster of this weird monster movie. Will you buy it? And they'll be like, sure, I'll give you a grand and I'll play it in my theater for a month. And then the producers would take that money from all these theaters. They get a grant from, like, I don't know, a bunch of different theaters, mm-hmm. and then go make the movie. Yeah. The movie doesn't exist. The poster exists. And then they would go make the movie based off the poster, and Ed Wood would make movies like that. Like, that's how Glenn or Glenda came to being, and we see that in this movie, mm-hmm. is the guy bought the rights to... The story. The story to a, um, I think it was, like, the first sex change of an American, mm-hmm. and... Uh, he was like, well, I couldn't really buy the rights to the real thing, so we're just going to make a knockoff of it. And that's how Ed Wood got the uh, chance to direct Leonard Glenda, which is one of the m- most interesting, might be one of the greatest pieces of outsider art cinema I have ever seen. It is it is not a good movie. It is fucking ridiculously weird. It's we- oddly acted. Like, like there's a buff- there are buffaloes in that movie for no reason. But it is like, it is poetic madness. That is how I would describe Ed Wood. It is, it is like poetic madness is Glenn or Glenda. 
but that's like the Ed Wood thing. Like, he made movies that were super cheap. Usually they were sci-fi or monster flicks, and none of them are very good movies. They're interesting. He fucking made them like he was making Citizen Kane, but they're not very good. Yeah, and I mean, it's also a weird movie to talk about because we're not just talking about the actors in this movie. We're talking about real people. Yes, because everyone, because it's a biopic. Yeah. That's another thing. This is a biopic, and it's one of the most, like, sincere and, like, light touches, like, you know, most, like, benefit of the doubt biopics I have ever seen. Usually you get the biopics, like, you know, Walk the Line Array and half the movies about their drug addiction and how they were, like, you know, had to fight through all their demons to really make something, you know, of substance. And this one's like, yeah, he was an alcoholic. We're just not going to talk about that. He was such an optimistic, howdy-doody kind of guy. And that's why it's so wild. You know, we we get this movie and, you know, it's a happy ending. And then when you know the actual Ed Wood a history. true Hollywood story, it's like, ooh. It got it real dark. Real dark, and it was not a happy ending. Oh, no. Oh, God, no. But, I mean, let's let's actually talk about, like, the movie at hand, because this is one of those movies that I don't think I had ever... I don't think I ever really heard about it until we started, like, getting into, like, a Tim, the Tim Burton phase of the podcast, mm-hmm. basically when you started scheduling movies. Yeah. Because um, when was the first time you ever heard of Ed Wood? Like like the movie, maybe not the director. Uh, I probably saw it either on a VHS, like you know the the trailers is yeah. either a VHS or a DVD, and I saw the trailer for it, and I'm like, oh, it's Tim Burton's Johnny Depp. This is cool. And then over the year, I've seen like bits and pieces of it because it's not an easy movie to find. No, it doesn't stream anywhere. It was streaming on Disney Plus, and I missed that window that it was there. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's always been like in my my reach, but I always miss it. So it's like finally got to see it, and yeah, I, I wish I had seen it a lot sooner. I feel like I did a disturb a disservice to myself by waiting this long to finally sit down and watch it. I'm kind of in the same boat with you. Like I think I vaguely knew that there was a a movie about a bad director biopic like vaguely Mm -hmm. but i don't even think i had any concept of what this movie was for like ever i don't think i heard about this movie until like when we started doing the podcast like three years ago about three years ago yeah like probably around that time i think you were i think we were doing edward scissorhands Mm -hmm. and i looked up like burton's filmography and that was like the first time i was like Oh, Tim Burton did Ed Wood. Okay, that what movie is this? And I think that's the first time I saw a trailer for it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I never got around to watching it. I, it's probably a thing where I thought this was like because I heard this was like where Tim Burton fell off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, oh, so it's one of the bad Tim Burton movies. And uh, no, this is like one of the great Tim Burton movies. Oh, yeah. This might be his greatest movie. And I, I think it's so funny that when we were having our you know pre-recording talk, we were talking about how. We both envisioned this movie a different way before we finally sat down and watched it. Oh, yeah. Built it up to be, you know, whatever we imagined, and we couldn't imagine something as spectacular as the movie is. It's it's the thing that it's so just optimistic and kind to everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's like this weird fantasy world that's built up. Like, you're seeing the world through this 
optimistic, happy-go-lucky, you know, can never keep me down, like, worldview that is Ed Wood. In Ed Wood in this movie. You know, like, Johnny Depp is playing a very particular kind of character, but it's like, you know, he's he's all smiles. Like, oh, nothing can keep me down. Yeah. Chief, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Like, that is the Ed Wood character, which could be really grating. Yes. You know, like, you know, the kind of uh, people I'm talking about who, no matter what they do, everything's happy-go-lucky happy and nothing keeps them down and it just annoys you that, that they just can't comprehend problems. Yes, very much so. But Johnny Depp is really playing a very, like, fine line because it goes, it's not, it's never annoying. It's just more endearing. Like, the harder this guy is trying, the more, like, I'm just on his side. Yeah, you, you just feel so bad for the guy because he has a dream. He's not willing to, you know, put it in the corner because, well, I tried and no one is really liking my work. He is just, I am determined. I love filmmaking. I'm going to do this till the day I die. It doesn't matter if I'm talentless and haven't really understood the concept of foreground or background lighting or what a good performance is. Or learn techniques. Or techniques. Or a second draft on my scripts at all. But, uh, you know, I'm going to keep on keeping on. That is, like, the thing about the movie that's, like, no matter how, like, flawed and, like, uphill he is fighting... It's still, like, you're still behind it. Like, you yeah. know the movies he's making are bad. Mm -hmm. But you kind of are like, come on, like, you want him to win, you yeah. know? You know he's going to end up making the worst movie of all time. And you're just like, could it win an Oscar, though? Like, could he just get, like, an applause at the end? Can we just get that? But, yeah, like. And Tim Burton, you know, more or less does go down that vein. Yes. That, and that's the other thing. I'm wondering if Tim Burton is so invested in this happy-go-lucky, everything's like Sunshine Roses look at the Ed Wood worldview because him and Tim, like Ed Wood, the real guy, mm -hmm. you know, and Tim Burton are very um, similar in particular ways. They exist in the same universe. And it's a thing where the real Ed Wood was friends with Bella Lugosi. And, you know, he did do his last films with Bella Lugosi. And Tim Burton had a friendship with Vincent Price. Yeah. So it was kind of that mentorship, you know, working with someone that you've idolized your whole life. And then getting to not only see them as the, the great performers that they are, but to also befriend them. And the other thing is, like, they even the, how they approach their filmmaking, right? Yeah. Like... Ed Wood has a very particular worldview. His movies are very singular to him. Angora sweaters, you know, like a very, like, he likes monster movies. He's like pulp and keech and things like that. And his movies just don't connect with anyone at the time. Tim Burton is into, you know, weird, pulpy horror stuff, mm -hmm. German expressionists. His movies are very singular to him. And by all rights, shouldn't connect to anyone, but they connect to everyone. He's one of the most popular filmmakers of, like, the late 1980s. And it's like, I wonder if Tim Burton's looking at... And Tim Burton even says himself, he does not understand why his movies work. Mm -hmm. He's like, I can't really judge a script if it's good or bad or not. I really over-stylize things, even to a point where I think it might be too much. He's a guy that's, like, very, like, unsure of why he's so good. It's like that meme, you know. Um, I just started 
I just started doing things and it just kept work- working. So I just kept doing it. Like that is Tim Burton, right? Mm-hmm. And I think he's looking at that in Ed Wood and it's like, shit, man. If like, if it weren't for the fact that Pee Wee was one of the biggest movies of that year, I would be in the same position as Ed Wood. I just had this undying passion trying to get movies made about my weird worldview and they would just not hit. It's it's a really weird kinship I see between the two of them. Yeah. But like you said before, you know, the friendship between Burton and Price and Edward and Lugosi, that's really the center of this movie. And I think that's probably what drew Burton to it as much as it did. Yeah. And I mean, their friendship is just so wholesome in a way. Yeah, even if it's like the like the end stage Lugosi. It, it's yeah, it's leading up to Lugosi's death, but it's just it's so pure in a way because they're both able to be so honest with each other. Yeah, and even when it turns into you know Lugosi needing Edward's help and calling him, and Edward's kind of like, I got to go back to his house and I got to help him, but it's just you know, it's the way that it's written. He is all that he has. Yes. And that gets into history lesson number two of this episode, or number three of this episode. Yes. The, the, the dark stages of late stage Lugosi. Yeah. And I mean, even I learned lessons. I mean, I'm not, you know, a Lugosi expert, but... You say wearing your Bella Lugosi Dracula t-shirt? Hey, this is a nice t-shirt that we picked up from Midsummer this year. Yes. Go to the Lugosi booth. You ever go to the horror conventions? They're always nice to us. They're a very nice family and always have really cool products. But, yeah, I mean... Lugosi was married at the time of his passing, but in the movie, you know, they make it that he's kind of this hermit that Ed has, you know, kind of drug out of his house. Yeah, because I think it is true, and they mentioned in the movie, his wife of 20 years had divorced him at that point Mm -hmm. because he had um, a morphine addiction. Yeah, he was addicted to morphine, and um, I think it was another opioid, and then he was alcoholic, but through this movie i didn't even know that he was addicted to drugs i just knew really that, yeah i just knew that he had you know a problem with alcoholism so i had to look into it so his addiction stemmed from an injury that he sustained when he was a soldier mm. and it was a thing where over the years he was holistically trying to take care of that injury he injured his back and it was a thing where you know doctors and medicine at the time were like here you're in pain you know, take this nice opioid. That'll help you. One of the most addictive, you know, drugs that you can take. Cause, and it wasn't like take this opioid. It was straight up. Here's morphine. Yeah. This is basically medical grade heroin. Yeah. So, I mean, that was just an unfortunate, you know, downfall for him. Well, he, there there were other downfalls. Like, we can go into the Lugosi career arc post-Dracula. Because it is a string of bad marketing decisions on his part and poor choices. Yeah, but I mean, you know, a fact where this wasn't something that, you know, he had been doing. It was something that a doctor was like, hey, this should help you out. And then it, you know, really took a hold of him because, you know, addiction is... Addiction sucks. Yes, addiction is horrible. But yeah, that that was something that I learned through the movie. And then, you know, you have your, you know, inaccuracies where it's like, you know, he didn't have a house. He was living in an apartment up to his death. So it's just, you know, these little bits and pieces where it's kind of like, well, that's not true. But then, oh, yeah, Ed Wood was a pallbearer at his funeral. They were <laughs> like, it wasn't like a thing like, oh, they inflated their relationship Mm-mm. for the movie. They were like legitimately like late stage of his life. Him and Lugosi were like legitimate friends. Yeah. 
So that's why it, it's just kind of wild to, you know, watch it. And it's like, you know, it's not just make-believe. These are actual events that did happen. Yeah. And we're seeing them played out. I mean, played out wonderfully because, you know, like, history lesson of Lugosi aside, he's played by Martin Landau in this movie. Who, the two of them look nothing alike. You could, If you looked up a picture of, like, normal Martin Landau and normal Bella Lugosi, couldn't be any farther from each other. Him in the makeup, it is uncanny. Yeah. How close they look. And it's not like, oh, he looks like, you know, however old he was in Dracula, like normal Dracula mm-hmm. age. But it's like, as a late stage Lugosi, he's pretty close. And we see real footage of, what is it, uh, White Zombie? Yes. In the movie. And they're watching White Zombie on Halloween. And we're seeing Landau and Depp. And they're watching it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, I can see the guy in White Zombie, you know, 20 years on looking like Landau. And also, Landau is doing a very key thing. And that's, like, the beauty of this movie is, like, the tone. Like, tone is very key in this movie. Yeah. And Landau is playing Lugosi in an incredibly, honestly, hilarious, like, depiction of the man. Yeah, because that's, you know, another Lugosi history lesson was he never swore. And he's he swears a lot in this movie, which is so shocking because it's, like, you watch his movie. Karlov couldn't smell my shit. Let's shoot this fucker. That yes. And that's the second one where you know it was. He really didn't have that big a beef with Karloff. Yeah, like it, I from everything we've ever researched is him and Karloff were were amicable. They were nice to each yeah, other. Yeah, they were coworkers. But it was a thing where it was like you know the studio was trying to pit you know Dracula versus Frankenstein. Uh, they've done a couple of movies together. There's been promotional ads where, you know, the two of them are, like, facing off over chess. But then it breaks to them laughing and, you know, kind of talking and, like, oh, you know, come see our movie. So it's just, like, you have these weird bits. But then you have Martin Landau, who, you know, really did the homework by, you know, watching Lugosi's movies and interviews. But really taking it up a notch by listening to Hungarian tapes, Mm. like learning the language, because he wanted to know where his tongue needed to be. And that was one of his directors that he'd worked with in the past, Landau, where I think he was Hungarian. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, you did a great job, not because you were trying to impersonate a person. He goes, you were doing a great job being a character trying to suppress your Hungarian accent. See, And that's like a amazing thing about his performance in this Mm -hmm. is, you know, he is playing... He's not playing Lugosi exactly. He's playing like a Lugosi like caricature because you know it's meant to be a comedy. Yeah. Oh, it's funny because Lugosi in this is kind of epitomizing the washed up end of stage actor, right? I mean, let alone you know Ed and Lugosi meeting for the first time is you know Lugosi trying out coffins. Yes, which is like a huge meme. Yeah, but the key to Landau's thing is he's playing that big comedic role, right? But he's also imbued with so much just like pathos and sadness Mm -hmm. and like near the end of the movie or when they're doing uh bride of the monster Mm -hmm. and he's like standing there and it's like in the middle of the night and they're about to shoot the scene where lugosi is being killed by the octopus monster that they forgot the motor for so he just has to throw the tentacles around himself which is hilarious it is hilarious and Lugosi sta- and Landau standing there, and he throws a bottle of Jack, and he's like, "I they offered me Frankenstein. Now I am here. Where did my career go? What?" Yeah, yeah. And it's he's fucking... doing this full monologue because you know he is just you know he just shot up in the car. 
Yes. Because they're doing like a a 2, 3 a.m. shoot in the middle of, you know, this lake where he's got to, you know. And it's not even a lake. It's like a it's like a ditch they flooded with a garden hose. So it's like, you know, he's out there. He's, uh, I'm trying to think how old he was when he passed. He, he was like probably close to 70. You know, a man in his 70s. And then, you know, he's doing this full monologue about, you know, how he bumbled, you know, letting Frankenstein go. And then, you know, he starts drinking some Jack. He, you know, gets through his monologue. He throws the bottle back to one of the ADs and he's like, all right, let's shoot this fucking thing. And then hops in the water and, you know, he's got to wrestle with this rubber octopus. Yes. Or squid. And see, this is the thing. Now, Lugosi, the the real actor, Mm -hmm. right? I've compared him in my mind to, like, Nicolas Cage now, where he did some bad movies. Mm-hmm. But Lugosi was in some, honestly, some awful shit. Nicolas Cage, he's been in some honestly awful shit. But, like, Nicolas Cage and Lugosi, they never phoned it in. If you, There's a monologue, and they show it in Edward in the actual film, um, of Lugosi, or Landau in the movie, giving this thing of, I have no home. I have nowhere to go. And he's doing the whole monologue mm-hmm. and it's in Bride of the Monsters and it's a word for word. It's even the same like composition. Yeah. And it is like a beautiful monologue that is like encapsulating like Lugosi's whole thing. He's like, I can never go back to Hungary. They will never accept me because of what I have done. I have mm-hmm. gone too far away from what made me them and blah, blah, blah. Now I will make my own race of atomic supermen. And it's and it ends with that, right? Yeah. Because it's a monster movie. But it is like so well done. And I'm like, look, Gosi, I know you're swimming in pure morphine right now, but god damn do you still got it. And in the movie, you know, Landau is not just having to do a Lugosi impression, like, off-camera, you know, oh, uh, he has to be like, ah, oh, fuck these, ah, oh, Karloff couldn't smell, like, like he's, he's doing that, the big <laughs> yeah. bits, but he also has to encapsulate the performance of another actor, and he does it so well that when you see them redo the Bride of the Monster monologue, it is, like, it is so good, it is so exacting. But yeah, like Landau, great. That's probably why he won the Oscar and why Samuel L. Jackson hates him to this day. Well, I mean, you know, he won the Oscar, but he also, you know, kind of broke Oscar history because this was the first time an actor won an Oscar portraying another actor. What? Is this the first one? This is the first one. And it wouldn't be repeated again until Kate Blanchett portrayed Catherine yeah. Hepburn and the, the aviator. aviator. Yeah. God, that's oh, that's right. Also, yeah, Kate Blanchett, that had to have been a weak year. Because I remember watching The Aviator, and she's good. She's doing a really good, like, Cat Hepburn impression. But was that really the best best actress performance or best supporting actress performance of, like, that year? Really? Well, I mean, I can't even think what else came out the same year as The Aviator. But I know that this year, the the Ed Wood year, that was oh, a yeah. pretty stacked Oscar ballot. We have, um, now, I alluded to that, you know, this is why... Uh, Samuel L. Jackson hates Martin Landau. Samuel L. Jackson to this day is still like fuck Landau. No one saw Ed Wood, but um, we did. We did. But I say that because this is the year that Pulp Fiction drops. We Which get... is so crazy to think of these two coming out in the same year. Not only that, both of them came out the same year. Um, but you know, one Best Picture this year. It's just a little movie. Not many people really remember it anymore. It's called Forrest Gump. 
Yeah, like for this is the year that Forrest Gump like swept like five fucking Oscars. You know, Tom Hanks won Best Actor. I think this one it won Best Film. You know, it's it's just wild. Yeah, and I can I can see why Ed Wood probably didn't play as well as for as the year that Forrest Gump was the biggest movie in America. Yeah, very different tone. The cultural zeitgeist is not into probably black and white pseudo art house mm-hmm. fair. Like that, I can see why this movie probably didn't do well because this movie bombed. Yeah, it bombed by the audiences, but the critics love the movie, which is so weird because it's usually reversed. It, yeah, which has been the uh, consensus of everything else in Burton's career. Audiences love the movie. Usually the critics are lukewarm on them, mm-hmm. but they still win like production awards, makeup yeah. or production design or whatever. I mean, speaking of makeup, you know, to talk about Martin Landau and, you know, his performance of Bella Lugosi. That was also helped with Rick Baker. Yes. Famous, you know, makeup artist. And he worked on Star Wars, I believe. I mean, was that he, Rick Baker? he has such a long catalog of movies that he's worked in. But it's just, you know, he went in and was kind of like, I've got to turn you into Bella Lugosi. And he was like, how do I do that without making you look, you know. Like you're wearing a helmet. Yeah. And he was just like, no, I'm going to give you accents. So, you know, you look like you. But you still look like Lugosi. You you look like a, a man that's aging. But yeah, that, that's a lot of Tim Burton's movies where it's a lot of the technicality, the technical stuff mm. that, you know, wins the acclaims and the awards. And this movie was like, no, we're going to throw out, you know, a best supporting actor because this movie is, you know, so well done. Yeah. And it's the thing where the design of the movie is... It is so interesting how the design of the movie, talking about like production stuff, because usually Burton's productions are a little like overproduced, right? Like the production design of like the house in Beetlejuice is like all over the place sometimes, you know? Or, you know, you have the the neighborhood in um, Edward Scissorhands. Oh, yeah. The, the, the vibrant neighborhood where it's like, you know, the neighborhood would never look like that. You Yeah, they spent like a, a $2 million repainting a whole street mm-hmm. just for these like one effect. But in this, it's like, honestly, they're going for an aesthetic of cheap set. They're going for an aesthetic of, oh, this is supposed to kind of look like an Ed Wood movie if it was done well. Because when they're at the um, hospital, Mm -hmm. right? Also, it is uh, the Metro uh, Norwalk State Hospital. That is where Lugosi got cleaned. I know this. That is still so wild to me that that, that he was in Norwalk when he was in a uh, rehab. Yep, but that's mm, right there. I live right down the street or used to. But uh yeah. So that there's a scene where in the hallway and they're and Johnny Depp is talking to a doctor and right behind it I'm like I'm looking at it and I'm like that's not a wall. That's a curtain. Did they just pin a curtain behind them to mimic a white wall? And then I was thinking about it and then I was like wait a minute. In Bride of the Monster, Glenn and Glenda, I think they did the same damn thing. It's one of those things where Tim Burton is doing visual reference to it's Ed Wood films. Attention to detail. Yes, and I think that's something that almost gets missed in the movie, is there's a lot of attention to detail to structure the sets and even like some of the uh, camera angles to mimic, like, yes, Ed Wood, his sets, his sets were not very good. Mm-hmm. The dialogue was not very good. Some of the dialogue in this is cheesy and weird, and it's kind of on purpose. But Tim Burton is doing a lot of visual reference to bad material and makes it good. Yeah. Which is fascinating. But, you know, 
Ow. You okay? I kind of hit my thumb on the on the table. Everyone, <laughs> totally fine. Totally meant to be in the movie. Probably has to deal with it a lot, you know, going through doors in life. You're really reaching, aren't you? I'm trying. Yeah, and I mean, it's such a, a a contrast, you know, seeing what an Ed Wood film set looks like, you know, with like curtains and, you know, whatever they could afford. Because mm-hmm. that's always the gag. He is trying to get the money to, you know, furnish his sets and do all these fantastic things and then the money runs out and they're getting either kicked out of the studio or, you know, you, you've got the repo team just taking everything back. Or they're getting baptized for more money. Yeah, you know, it's a thing that, that kind of sounds like something you would do. Oh, God. Can we talk about that scene? <laughs> it, that might be one of my favorite oh. Bill Murray scenes in cinema history. And, I mean, yes, Bill Murray is in this movie. Uh, he's playing Bunny Breckenridge. Bunny Breckenridge. Uh, I guess he didn't have that much lines in the movie initially. Yeah. And then they cast him, and then Tim Burton's like, no, we got to write more stuff because it's Bill fucking Murray. Yes. And I love Bunny Breckenridge in this movie. He's hilarious. Bill Murray is the definition of a scene stealer. Every time, like, every time you have him in one of these, like, supporting roles, you're just like, I'm just fucking captivated by what this guy is doing. Yeah. Like, he's just standing there. And, like, maybe he'll, like, say, he'll maybe he'll have, like, two lines. But they're the funniest or most interesting lines of the entire scene. And, you know, like, what's so wild about uh, the Bill Murray's portrayal of Bunny Breckenridge is, like, there's a whole, like, pathos and thing going on with Bunny that is just not brought up or delved deep to into the film at all. He's going down to Mexico with his boyfriend saying goodbye penis and then his boyfriend <laughs> dies, he loses his luggage and then a, a band of mariachis take him back to America and now they're his eternal companions and him and like like Tor Johnson just have this like bromance halfway through the movie and it's just it's just great. It's like the movie could be another 2 hours. Of just buddy Breckenridge stick. Well, that too, but I mean, you know, you, like you said, we've got, you know, Tor Johnson, we have um, Criswell in the movie, yes. we have Vampira in the movie. Okay, can I make a comment about the Tor Johnson thing? George the Animal Steel and Tor Johnson, I they might be the same fucking person. It's creepy, right? It is so weird. Like, when he, is getting, when he has the eye contacts mm-hmm. on and he's getting out of the uh, uh, grave, grave for uh, uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space... I thought they I thought they were reusing footage from Plan 9 no. until they did the whole cut and then the guys come in to help him get out. I'm like it is unfucking canny. And I know George I know what George Animal Seal looks like. I watched WWF back in the day. Same. I didn't think he looked you put him in black and white. He just looks like Tor Johnson. It's so weird. Yeah, that's why you know you kind of have to really watch this movie a couple of times cuz it'll just be like Am I watching a documentary? What it's it's creepy. There's some of the parts of the movie that are documentary esque. It's just such a heightened reality we're in, and as you're going through the movie, you start getting deeper and deeper into this weird world that we're existing in. And that's kind of like the whole thing with Edward. He's created this insulated weird world with all these weird characters, you know vampira this horror hostess whose career kind of goes tits up uh criswell this guy who makes weird wild predictions on television and for some reason is the most like famous and well off of all of them 
funny Breckenridge who is trying to get a sex change operation, but is also one of, like, the socialite that's part of a famous, like, acting family. Like, in Tor Johnson, a Swedish wrestler who's doing the movies because he's like, oh, like Mickey Mouse? That sounds fun. And then you have characters like Dolores Fuller, who was Ed Wood's wife, first wife, girlfriend. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were... She was his girlfriend. Because I think Ed Wood was married two or three times? Question mark? But I think in the movie they just call her his girlfriend. And it's like, you know, you have, like, his anchor to reality, which is Dolores. And then you have this universe that he's created with these new companions and friends that he's made in hollywood i love when dolores shows up and she's like oh is this the usual bands of misfits and drug addicts <laughs> just say it a little louder, dolores let them all hear you is I- this the usual band of, <laughs> of drug addicts and misfits <laughs> i mean i love dolores uh she's played by sarah jessica parker this is an early role for her right yes this is also the same time that uh she did hocus pocus Hocus Pocus came out in 93. Oh, okay. So it's kind of crazy to think, you know, she was filming this and Hocus Pocus around the same time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Dolores Fuller was a real character. Uh, real person. Uh, sorry, a real person. Yes. Uh, she did dump Ed. But in the movie, it's because, you know, he was just so not him anymore. He she, He wasn't the man that, you know. Uh, he revealed to her that he cross-dressed regularly and that in it's portrayed in the movie that she couldn't deal with his proclivities anymore but in reality because she you know she saw the movie she really enjoyed it she helped finance you know his early films and that's where she had she, the issue with, she was in glenn or glenda she was and that's where she had the issue with it was she didn't have a problem with his cross-dressing she had a problem with his alcoholism because that was really his other woman that that was you know his what he needed to get by and in this movie they make it you know that she just can't handle the cross-dressing she can't handle this new you know world that he's living in he's not really living in reality he's living in fantasy land Mm -hmm. and that's why you know you kind of see the strain with you know i knew you when you were just the guy trying to make films and now that you've gotten onto that platform, I don't know who you are anymore. It's so interesting because Dolores Fuller is portrayed as a villain in this. Like, she's the closest to a villain in this, mostly just because she's the most normal, well-adjusted. You're making shit, guys. Can you not see that you're making bad movies? And then she finally has the blow-up when they're having, um, what is it, like an after-party or, or a rap it's party? It's a rap party, and Ed Wood, or Johnny Depp, comes out in a belly dancer costumes and starts doing a whole like <laughs> burlesque strip tease. She's getting Bella into this. Tor Johnson's getting into this. And then takes off the, takes off the veil, and you see that, oh, he doesn't have his false teeth in because he got knocked out in the war. And you can and you see that and it's a big like oh uh, Ed whatever and, he, and she's like mustache. what and and she's like Ed are, all of you what the fuck are you doing she's finally what? hit her breaking point and this is where they break up and it's like you know you feel like well how dare she treat Ed that way and it's like then you you know you learn the real history and it's like well yeah I could see why she got out of that relationship he's an alcoholic he's not living on this plane that we're living on he's in fantasy land yeah you you know the the most you know 
healthy thing would to be get out of this toxic relationship. And here's the, here's an interesting thing, right? Because you bring it up, like, the real Ed Wood was, like, a raging alcoholic. Yeah. Like, uh, famously, like, he could not write without drinking. Mm-hmm. And he wrote, like, he wrote plenty of movies, you know, whatever. But um, he wrote, I believe it's, like, over 100 novels later on in his career. Like pulp novels, right? Pulp no- yeah, pulp novels, nudie novels, you know, mm-hmm. racy novels or whatever. But, you know, he imagine that. He writes 100 novels. He can only write drinking. Mm-hmm. So out of 100-plus novels, he's getting smashed every day doing it. There's a documentary of really late-stage um, Ed Wood, and he is plastered in it. He's not wearing a shirt. He's just, like, rambling or whatever. So it's, like, it, again, it's a really dark, like, timeline. There, but there it, was even, you know, a thing where someone was writing a, a biography about Bela Lugosi. So it, I think that's where the documentary footage comes from. And it was an early one. I think it was around the time of his passing, you know, maybe a couple years after he had passed. And they went to go, you know, interview Ed Wood because they were friends. They worked together up until his death. And he started the interview sober, and progressively through the interview, he got more and more drunk to the point where I guess he threw the interviewer against a wall in his apartment and was screaming at him, I should be the one writing the document or this biography, not you. I knew the real man. You know, you're basically a hack. And the interviewer, you know, finally got himself away from him and was like, you know, it was nice meeting you. We're never going to talk ever again. And. I need to find that biography and see if, you know, it's mentioned in there, you know, this blurb of him and Ed Wood, you know. Getting into a, a tiff. Oh, not the tiff, but just, you know, the years of them working together. Yeah. But it's just like, yeah, you know, Ed Wood probably could have written a really good biography about the final years of Bella Lugosi. I but... mean, like, I, we, we've, we've listened to his dialogue. I don't think it'd be that great. But here's the thing. The movie never touches on the fact that Ed Wood's a drinker. No, and that's why this movie is... It's romanticizing history mm. because Tim Burton gives Ed Wood a happy ending. Gives him also all the benefit of the doubt in the world. Oh, his movies, he never had the financings to fill his dreams. Oh, he always did one takes and that's mm. why his movies, the acting isn't yeah. great. He's really giving like the most loving version of the Ed Wood story he could possibly And that's make. why I feel like we kind of have to give Dolores Fuller a little bit of, you know credit a little bit of credit because i mean she did help finance she did help even with the costuming she gave the clothing off of her back so that you know they could use it in his films so ed could have angora sweaters angora sweaters yes so you know it's that and she didn't you know leave him for you know the reasons that we see in the movie and then just to see that she went on and she lived you know a happy life where she ended up being a songwriter and also, you know, writing some songs for Elvis. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, you can imagine what would have happened if she had stayed with Ed, which she had possibly probably not, not anything good Yeah, it's like, or you at know, least nothing successful. Would she have turned to alcoholism? And it's like, we see that with his wife, his wife up until his death, where it's just, Oh boy, that's a, a sad story. Again, like the Ed Wood story is a very dark and winding road, but it's, that's the thing about the movie. You never see Ed drinking. I don't think you ever see Ed drunk or anything like that. The production design does do an interesting thing to detail. Because I did a um another... Because I watched the movie and then I was like put it on again yeah. in like the background I was doing something. And I kind of like glance over and I'm like, oh, that's weird. When he's writing, you see there's, there's liquor bottles around. Mm-hmm. Some of them are like half full. Some of them are empty. 
but you never see him drinking. So it's that thing of like the reality. Like yeah. Tim Burton is making this romanticized worldview. Everything's through Edward's eyes. Everything's all nice and hunky dory. But even like Bella Lugosi's like morphine addiction, that's stuff that's in the margins of the film. You know, they're watching a movie and Lugosi's like, I go take my medicine. And in shadow play in the background, he like goes and shoots up. Yeah. And it's like the real, the dark reality that Ed Wood exists in is in the margins of this film. But we're not seeing that because Ed Wood is just such a optimistic kind of guy as portrayed in this movie. Like, yeah, you know, Bella's like not doing so hot, but God damn it. He's Bella Lugosi. He's a great actor. You know, yeah, maybe I have one or two drinks when I write my scripts, but now the scripts are coming from the heart, you know, not from, you know, the bottle. Yeah. It's it's that kind of thing. And it's like, I can, I really understand why Tim Burton made that creative choice because the real point of the film isn't Timber, or it, not Tim Burton, isn't Ed Wood, the alcoholic, or Bela Lugosi, the morphine addict. It's the story of these two guys on the edges and fringes of hollywood of success becoming friends and like like the whole like the the ending part of the movie right after bella gets clean and he's like when are we gonna make another movie eddie what yeah because uh bella does go to rehab and famously the first celebrity to check himself into rehab and it's a thing where I don't know how authentic this is to real life, but in the movie, they find out that he doesn't have health insurance through um, the actor's studio anymore or whatever it was called. Mm. So they're like, he needs to leave because, you know, we there's no insurance coming in. We can't take care of him. We, and, we can't pay for any of his treatment. And they're like, you know, he doesn't have the money to cover that. So Ed, you know, has to go tell Bella okay, you know, you're coming home, you're good. And Bella's like, I don't feel good. You know, I, I still feel like, you know, I'm on the mend or, you know, I'm still not quite to the mend. And Ed's, you know, no, you're good. You're good. You know, really, you know, trying to pump him up. And it's just trying to build another little fantasy world for Bella to live in. Right. Exactly. And, you know, it's so heartbreaking when they're outside of the hospital and Bella's just, you know, when are we going to make another one, Eddie? He's like, I, I you know, I want to make another film. And it's just, it's heartbreaking, and then that's when we get the coverage in front of uh, Bella's house. Yes. Where, you know, he's leaving the house, and, you know, he picks up the flower, and then he starts to weep. And it's just like, and, oh, my and, God. And Bella's like, what's this for, Eddie? And Eddie's like, oh, you know, they're not doing any sound because we're just, you know, getting a little bit of extra stock or whatever, and it's all silent. And this is the only time in the entire movie that you see Ed Wood making something not for him yeah he's not making like glenda glenda that was all for him mm -hmm. it was so that he could make a you know a movie about his you know proclivities right he's made bride of the monster so he can like try and make a like a, a real moving picture you know show everyone that he can direct something but this it's him alone with the camera with bella and he's just doing it because he's given bella something something to live for he's mm -hmm. like you know He's like, yeah, Bella's not going to live forever, but he's a fucking star. I'm going to put him in front of the camera mm -hmm. and let him do what he what he loves, right? And it's it's such a like heartwarmingly sad and beautiful moment. It is that is the moment that I'm like, yeah, this this is why this movie should exist. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's also Martin Landau, you know, the great performance that he gave. There's so much emotion in this scene. Any of the scenes when he calls Ed for help and, you know, he's 
if he's laying on the ground because he can't get up or he's depressed and then you you hear you know the swan lake kind of pipe in you know his theme you know this the dracula theme the dracula theme the theme where you know it's you know this all-powerful dracula but in this it's you know the lighter side of swan lake where it's just You've seen him at his peak, and now you're seeing him at his lowest, and it's just... It's, it's the swan song. It's the swan song, and it just tears your heart out. It's just like, oh my god, you just want to help. Yeah, and it's a thing where, like, that that ending part of the movie, you know, and then Bella dies, and then it's this whole thing where Ed Wood is like, well, we gotta make, we gotta make Plan 9 for Outer Space, right? Mm-hmm. And he's doing it, and you get the idea that he's doing it, for Bella Lugosi, so mm-hmm. he can like use that stock footage and like put Bella in one more film, and you get the sense that he's also doing it because he doesn't want to make a movie where he has to compromise. He yeah. wants to make a movie wholly for him and yada yada yada, <clears throat> and that leads into the scene we started talking about like a half hour ago, the bapti- the baptismal scene yes. to get um to get paid out, which is a real thing that happened. So Ed Wood goes to the, I think it's the Southern California Baptists of America or whatever the hell, and is like, hey, will you give us X thousands of dollars for our movie? And they're like, yes, but we have to baptize your entire cast or crew. And they're all there getting baptized. And you have Bill Murray, and they're just like, do you decide to um, get rid of all sin and darker thoughts and give yourself to the Lord and above? Bill Murray says, Sure gets dunks, dunks him in dunks him in he starts freaking out swims over and he's talking to to edward and he's like ed how in the world do you convince all your friends to get baptized to make a monster movie and he says to buck to bunny it's not a monster movie it's a science fiction thriller and that really encapsulates something very distinctive about the Edward character. You just want the guy to win. Yeah. And I mean, Tim Burton lets him win. We see um, Kathy O'Hara, who is his last, you know, wife up until his death. Mm-hmm. Played by Patricia Arquette. Yes. And, you know, we see the two of them fall in love. We see, you know, their, you know, engagement and their, you know, their Hollywood moment at the the Plan 9 premiere. Yes, they go to the Plan 9 premiere. I love when he's like, this is the movie I'm going to be remembered for. And he's, he's right. He's right, yeah. But that is another thing. This is the last line when they say to each other, like, hey, let's go to Vegas. Let's get married. And what is it? She What's she say? Um, well, she's complaining because it's, there's a torrential downpour. Uh, they're driving in a, um, a, a coupe with the top stuck. Yeah. I was trying to think of the, the car, but yeah, the, 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 the roof is stuff on the coupe. And, you know, by the time the movie's done, there's like a pool of water in there. And it's like, really, you want to drive for five hours through the desert? And he's like, by the time we hit the desert, the rain will be gone. It'll just be the two of us. We'll get married. And, you know happily ever after and but he also says you know i think he says by the time we get to vegas we'll dry out hell it'll probably stop raining by the time we turn the corner and that's that beautiful optimism of that character that just like god damn it ed i just want you to win one just just get a w and it feels like he gets the w right he gets the w in that scene because we're at the premiere we've seen premieres throughout this movie and how 
<laughs> they're fucking riots. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of my favorite scenes is, I can't remember the movie, but it's when uh, him, Bella, Vampira, they all pile into a hearse. And there, there's more people. I think Criswell's probably there. Yeah, I, I think it's for the uh, Bride of the Monster um, premiere. So they go to the premiere, and the audience is just going nuts. They're throwing things, and they see the cast is there. So then they start throwing things at them. So they make a beeline, run outside. People are tearing the hearse apart. It's a full-on fucking riot. Oh, yeah. It's just chaos, and it's hilarious. But then you get to this one where it's like, you know, you've kind of like, oh, man, you know, either no one shows up to his premieres. People are trying to tear him apart as his premieres. And this one... You know, everyone's applauding. All the seats are full. They got the suits on. It's a real Hollywood premiere. You know, they're sitting in one of, like, you know, the the sweet boxes. And it's just like, wow, you know, he really is a director. He's done it. And that's when we get the, you know, the happily ever after outside. You know, let's go get married. And then we get those very true cue cards. (laughs) Yeah. Right after the, the end credit. Ed Wood went on to direct pornographic films and died of alcoholism at 57. You get, and then it's like everyone in the movie gets their, you know, title cards, what happened to them, where things went on. Um, and it's, it's a thing where the movie, it's a constructed dream mm-hmm. of uh, a Hollywood dreamer that probably, that probably could never have made it. Like, Ed Wood, in, like, let's be honest, Ed Wood, even if somebody gave him, like, $100,000 in 1950, whatever, to make Plan 9 from Outer Space, would it have been a good movie? Probably not. I mean, who knows how that, how the, the money would have been distributed. Yeah. I mean, especially when, if he's dealing with his addiction, and then, you know, he loved these really over-the-top sets. It's like, he probably would have, you know, blown 90000 just on the, the graveyard. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, the movie is like, you know, oh, you know, Ed Wood was a, was not a very good director, but goddammit, he was a great dreamer, and that's the, I think that's the vibe I get from him in this movie. You know, the real Ed Wood, I don't know how cynical he became Mm -hmm. making these movies, I don't know how in love he was with the Hollywood system, but for my money, this is probably, like, the most charitable, most loving film about making cheap movies you could have possibly seen in 94. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's sad because when this movie premiered, it was 10 days shy of Edward's 70th birthday. So you'd think, you know, with the alcoholism, if he had been able to kind of, you know, rein it in, he possibly could have been, you know, um, like a consultant on this film. He could have seen this homage to his career. It's it's the sad thing because not even like I think it's like he died in like the seventies, right? Um, but if he managed to just make it to nineteen eighty, that's when the Golden Turkey Awards came mm-hmm. out by some film critics and they named Plan Nine from Outer Space the worst film ever made, Ed Wood, the worst director of all time. Mm-hmm. And I and that's when people started reclaiming like these old B movies as, you know, schlock comedy. Yeah. And it's not until, like, the 90s, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, when they're like, hey, yeah, these shitty B-movie schlock from the 50s, yeah, they're funny, but there's some of them that are actually, like, kind of good. Yeah. Or maybe not good, but there's something, like, there's art to these. Mm -hmm. And it's the sad thing where it's like, man, if he just made it a couple more years and people started reclaiming his work, he might have gotten around to being like, 
wow, people actually appreciate the work for what I did. But then again, huge alcoholic. So that probably wasn't going to fucking happen. Yeah, or, you know. Also a little bit of an egomaniac judging by uh, him drinking and being like, I should make the Bela Lugosi biopic. I should make the movie. That, but I think, you know, I don't think he would have made it, you know, this far into the... Uh, 2000s. The 2000s, yeah. But I think it was either UCLA or USC... Uh, they do this thing with their students every year, their film students, where they take a prompt from one of his films and they remake it into their own. It's this own festival that they have for Ed Wood. And it's like, see, you know, you did make some questionable choices in your films, but it's like, but still to this day, people are studying them and turning them into their own thing. Yes. So his memory still does live. Yeah, like the legacy of Ed Wood, I think at this point is pretty secured. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with the the film students doing stuff from his prompts. I mean, his his movies are wild, and I think they're there's artistry to his movies. I do think Ed Wood is an auteur, mm-hmm. and I think this film, the Tim Burton Ed Wood film, ninety four whatever, stands as kind of a testament to the guy, and in the sweetest in a, way, in the sweetest way you could have possibly made this movie. But with that, you know, after us gushing about it for like an hour, how would you rank this film? You know, two out of five, six out of, you know, six out of ten. What are you, what are you feeling? Are we going up to five or are we going to ten? Uh, up, up to five. We're okay. a five-star podcast here. I'd give it a five. Yeah, same. This is I a five-star movie for you know, me. I, I love the aesthetics of this movie because it's not just the Tim Burton aesthetics. It's the romanticized version of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, we get the Brown Derby. We get, you know, some of these old haunts. Along with, you know, being on an Ed Wood film set. So you see the contrast of the glitz and glam of Hollywood and, you know, just trying to make a movie to get into the glitz and glam of Hollywood. It's it's the margins of Hollywood. That's yeah. the that's the beauty of the movie is it's it's it, glorifying the margins. And it's not even Hollywood. It's like that Hollywood land dream that everyone has, you know, where it's beautiful and there's palm trees and, you know, there's no dirt or debris in this movie and it's like you go to actual hollywood and it's you know it's, it's a, a mess it's a rundown shithole but you know <laughs> but you know it's ours we love hollywood but you know it's just you know the attention to detail the acting the the heart-wrenching scenes in this movie and the heartwarming scenes in this movie yeah it's just i i'm mad at myself that it took me this long to watch it i am also mad at you for not watching it sooner it it'd be like that. Yeah, I am also mad at myself because this yeah this movie five star for for me this might be my new favorite Burton. Um, it's the movie that the Burton aesthetic isn't so in your face. We're not getting weird German expressionism stuff, and it's the stuff we are getting is more played like noir. Like there's mm-hmm. beautiful lighting when they're in Musso and Frank's, and we get yeah. to see uh, um, Orson D- Welles, D'Onofrio playing Orson Welles, which uncanny performance with one of the worst dub jobs in cinema history. But it's, it's you know, the brain from being in the brain, so you can't be that mad. But, like, there's some beautiful black and white photography in here. The performances are great. I think this is, like, one of Johnny Depp's best performances. Oh, definitely. Just because of, like, the weird line he's walking for this. But, yeah, five-star classic for me. One of the best Burton movies. And, I mean, speaking of Johnny Depp, this was also when he was going through his breakup with Winona Ryder. Oh, really? Yeah, so there was uh, a lot of days where he was coming to set and he was just in tears because, you know, Winona, I'll say, that's the love of his life. But, you know. <laughs> you just want the Winona-Johnny Depp relationship oh, back. God. You miss the 90s, so. 
that would make my dreams come true if they got back together. But uh, yeah, you know, it was this thing where you know he's going through this this heartbreak, this breakup, and just to see him turning it around because he needs to be Ed Wood, and that's kind of a testament to the character where you know this man is just getting knocked down every you know every step he takes, you know, finance, technique, whatever it is, he just you know keeps picking himself back up puts a smile on his face and he gets back to work yeah and that's that's something we kind of glossed over is like johnny depp even at this point in his career he wasn't like a list like you know the johnny depp Mm -hmm. we know now he was like indie guy that could sometimes lead a major like studio movie sometimes and it's again it is impressive and knowing that backstory stuff it's impressive how he is playing ed wood the way he is knowing that backstory behind it but yeah but i have one final boo fact before we final boo fact before we tell everyone what's coming next week yes so we had talked about you know how it was a shame that ed didn't live long enough to you know be able to see this movie or consult this movie but his wife kathy did and she actually did do a set visit and they were very nervous because you know you're portraying people and you know this is her late husband and i guess the day that she showed up they didn't specify what scene they were filming that day, but I guess Johnny as Ed was really disheveled that day, and they were worried that you know it might trigger her because he Ed didn't <laughs> go the in the nicest way. He didn't, and he came uh, stumbling out of his trailer, and she you know smile on her face and she goes, "That's my Eddie," and it was just like you know everyone was so worried, and she's like, "Yeah." That's him. Yeah, that disheveled <laughs> pile rolling out of the trailer with the smell of bourbon on his lips. That's my man. That's my man right there. Oh, that that is really nice. That's really lovely. So that is my boo fact of this episode. So with that, where you can find us, you can check us out. Where boo? Uh, you could go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, and eventually YouTube. Yeah, you can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube, where we post video versions of this podcast disguised as slideshows, but they're moving. Uh, And eventually, when I get off my ass, I'll put more of them up there. But if you want to know when I'm putting more up, or when we're releasing new episodes, or just what adventures we're going on, you can follow us on our Instagram page at... The Film Club Podcast, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, and random adventures we go on. And with that, we'll see you next week at the film club. Have a good week, everybody. Bye.